0: and we're live hello everyone welcome to another episode of not another military history podcast my name is jacob and today we are going to be on part let's see what is it here part five of the series on the history of war elephants uh so i just went ahead and got done with a six mile long bike ride uh, I'm trying to get into the uh, the habits of of biking again because I used to do a lot of running and I really enjoyed it for like about a year. I you know like run like 12 miles every weekend and that would be my cardio you know for that week and everything on top of you know going to the gym and everything. Uh, and then just my, it really started to fuck with my right knee. It started to like you know just continually hurt me really bad. <laughs> there was actually there was one point when um, my wife she was out of town was going to her sister's wedding. And I just done um at that time I was doing four mile runs, but uh my shoe was messed up. And so I ended up fucking with my right knee. And so it was like for a good, maybe like a couple hours, it was like, I lost like complete like use of my right knee. It was just so like damn fucking sore and on top of that. I was having to give this medication to my cat and he was not one of of course take his medication you know because cats are difficult like that i mean what cat would be reasonable under any circumstances so he was hiding over the couch and here i am with my bum fucking leg like trying to get this cat like to get his like medication so he doesn't die like it was but um so um yeah but so first it started to focus my name and so i had to stop running for a while and now i just i don't don't really have the same passion for it as I used to. Like, you know, it's like I can run, you know, a few miles at the gym or outside, but it, it's, it doesn't really do anything for me anymore. I mean, I, I love hiking, I love biking. So I think uh, when I'm not hiking, I'll probably just end up doing my weekly biking. So, um, went ahead and did some hills. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, which, you know, it was a little bit more than I expected. But, uh, like I said, still starting to get back into the groove of it. But man, I tell you though, like, just, there's nothing like just just quite like going down a hill or just on a bicycle. Just the wind blowing your face and everything. It was just, it's just such a great freeing feeling, you know. So if I, if nothing else, uh, if you don't get anything else in this podcast, go ride, go ride a bike. It's a lot of fun. So uh, anyways, we're going to go ahead and pick up where we left off. So we went ahead and left off at Rome's uh, victory over Carthage during the Second Punic War. So, shortly after the Second Punic War, Roman got a war with King Philip of Macedon. So, King Philip had previously ad- allied himself with Hannibal, and so the Romans feared what would happen if he uh, allied himself with Antiochus uh, III of Cilicia. So, Council Flaminius of the Romans would face off against King Philip in 201 BCE. Where he used the wildfinch elephants at Zama to great effect. So, those elephants ended up breaking the Macedonian left flank during this battle and they uh, routed Philip's cavalry, allowing Flaminius' allegiance to surround the Greek infantry and cut them to pieces. Uh, Rome would then fought another war against Antiochus the Great, whom Hannibal at the time was still in league with. So, Hannibal basically, uh, shortly after the, the Punic Wars, flees Carthage. Uh, he, he had kind of, you know, like got himself in trouble with some of the leading Carthaginian families there because, you know, they, you know, blamed him for their defeat and whatnot. So he went ahead and fled there and it's kind of like, you know, at the time after the Punic war, Hannibal kind of goes through a period where he's, you know, like working with other Greek rulers and everything. And like, you know, rulers in the East still trying to kind of fuck with the Romans a little bit, you know, and in a way that he can. So, um, now, at the Battle of Magnesia, Rome would defeat Antiochus without the aid of the elephants, and as part of the terms of surrender, uh, Rome uh, went ahead and demanded that Antiochus hand over all of his war elephants. So, just like they did with Carthage, you know, like we talked about last podcast, and the Punic War, they went ahead, and, you know, like, as part of the treaty, they said that Carthage was no longer allowed to train any war elephants. So... This kind of shows that to the Romans war elephants were sort of ancient weapons of mass destruction. Uh, they wouldn't allow others to possess them where they could, you know, like, although they themselves would oftentimes use them during battle. And the Romans weren't really too keen on uh, giving the elephants a lot of credit in most of their battles. The Romans, uh, like I said, are very infantry-centric army you know they really, really value their roman legions and you know they kind of viewed the elephants as kind of this like you know weird kind of eastern weapon in a way you know kind of coming from like you know the far east of india but like so they wouldn't oftentimes write about you know like how important they were to battles in which they used them but i mean they still the fact that they're willing to go ahead and flex their muscles and tell other nations that like yeah you're not allowed to you know in terms of surrender you're not allowed to you know like you know, have any war elephants anymore, it does show that they clearly placed a value on them in battle. Uh, so The Romans uh, continue to use war elephants in subsequent battles against all manner of enemies, including the Gauls and other Greeks and Asians. Uh, the Romans typically use the elephants to crush the flanks of the enemy armies, uh, one example being at the Battle of Pina against Percy's Cavalry and 168 BCE. Uh, this tactic would often create an opening that allowed the Romans to outflank the more ponderous Greek phalanxes. So the Greek phalanx is a really, really strong formation from the front. Like if you try to attack it from the front, you're not going to go anywhere. You're going to hit a wall of spears. Uh, But the Roman legions, of course, are a lot more flexible. And then so this is partly, you know, with the aid of elephants, it made for a very effective formation if they're able to attack from like the sides or from the um, from the back. Uh, So uh, Caesar also ended up using elephants during a second invasion of Britain in 54 uh, BCE where they terrify the bold British tribes. And I'm going to go ahead and read a quote. Let's see. So this is from uh, Pollyannus in his eight books of stratagems written uh, in Durham Roman times. Uh, Quote, Caesar attempted to pass a large river in Britain Castellanus, king of the Britons, obstructed him with many horsemen and chariots. Caesar had in his train a very large elephant, an animal hitherto unseen by the Britons. Having armed him with scales of iron and put a large tower upon him, and placed therein archers and slingers, he ordered them to enter the stream. The Britons were amazed on beholding a beast till then unseen, and of an extraordinary nature. As to the horses, what need to write of them? Since even among the Greeks, horses fly, seeing an elephant even without harnesses. But thus towered and armed, and casting darts and slinging, they could not endure even to look upon the sight. The Britons therefore fled with their horses and chariots. Thus the Romans passed the river without molestation, having terrified the enemy by a single animal. End quote. So, this is just another example of the Romans using the elephants as a shock weapon, like many other nations did at this time. So Caesar also uh, ended up training his troops alongside elephants they would be familiar with them and their capabilities. Now, some Roman emperors became very fond of elephants, actually, and they would drive through the city streets on elephant drawn chariots, while uh, Emperor Germanicus, for example, trained elephants to wear dresses, toss flowers, and to dance as well. <laughs> because, Roman... because, you know, why not? You're a Roman emperor, you might as well be... They were all fucking weird and inbred. Uh, emperor Nero allegedly owned one that could also walk on a tightrope. Uh, I highly doubt that, but hey, I mean, anything is possible, I suppose. Uh, gradually, though, elephants as a war weapon declined in use by the Romans during the Peer period, both due to the Pax Romana, being that there was this period of Roman history, the Pax Romana, which there was largely just a large amount of peace throughout the empire, so peace equals no need for war elephants, and uh, the Romans also had a very strong desire for ivory, which, of course, drove the African forest elephants in North Africa to extinction, sadly. Uh, gradually, Rome's power waned along with the use of its elephants in battle. Uh, but other powers in the east continued to use them. So we've been talking a lot about the um, western use of war elephants among Alexander and the Romans and so on, and Hannibal. Now we're going to go ahead and shift east, which is where they really the war elephants really were. Um, you know, had quite a amount of staying power over the centuries. So a lot of people don't know this, but Muhammad actually used war elephants as well during his conquest of the Arab world. So Muhammad, of course, formed the Muslim religion in around 572 AD, which became known in the Muslim history as the Year of the Elephant. So uh, due to growing religious tension, the Christian king Abraha in Yemen raised an army and marched off to destroy the city of Mecca. So Abraha's army contained several wild elephants that were suppli- uh, supposed to destroy the Muslim holy sites in Mecca. Now, according to some histories, after the people of Mecca fled, Abraha's army has lead elephant, Mahmud's stopped and kneeled down, refusing to go any further. The rest of the elephants refused to go without their leader, so the formation came to a halt. Mahmood um, refused to go one step towards Mecca. Now, this I'm sure in no way this couldn't have just been the elephant being, like, fucking tired or anything. Just like, just like, dude, I've I fucking been marching all day. I just want to go, like, fucking sit down and rest. And I'm just, a sign from God! <laughs> you got, you, you gotta love it. So, uh, according to the Quran, uh, Allah sent a flock of birds to drop heavy pebbles on the enemy army, killing many. Uh, other sources say that smallpox broke out in the army, uh, whatever the cause King Abraha retreated and left Mecca alone. Uh, I'm willing to go with the smallpox myself, but, uh, Hey, if, if anybody else is, uh, has any, has any, um, accounts of, of death by pebbles in, um, uh, in ancient history, please let me know. Uh, Uh, The Quran also states, uh, Hast thou not seen how thy lord dealt with the army of the elephant? Did he not cause their stratagem to miscarry? So, this is another little quote there as well. So, uh, 30 years later, Muhammad declared himself a prophet, and in 630 AD, he took Mecca without a fight, but died shortly thereafter. His followers resolved to spread Islam by a means of taking over other nations, mainly. During this time period. So, uh, now, their initial invasion of the Sassanid Empire failed due to an elephant, which the Muslims had not yet really seen before. Uh, so, uh, their next encounter I mean, not really like in battle, you know, thus like they've you know, they've heard of the army you know King Abraha's army had an elephant, but the Muslims at this point hadn't actually faced any elephants in actual combat. So, uh, this invasion didn't go very well, to, to say the least. <laughs> So, uh, they faced a Persian army uh, that held 30 war elephants, so the Arab horsemen attempted to charge, but the horses stopped short, frightened of the elephants. Now, Abu El-Badiah, who was one of the Arab leaders, uh, tried to inspire his men to fight, uh, so he went ahead and dismounted and ran up to attack the elephant. He was immediately grabbed by the elephant and trampled to death. (laughs) Just... Seeing uh this Muslim army fled, that's what happens when you try to go fucking Leroy Jenkins and against a goddamn elephant. Like it's 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 not going to go the way that you think it's going to go. So uh, the very next time, in the Battle of uh, Cadizia in 636 AD, now the Arabs are better prepared. So they use archers to distract the elephants while cavalry rode up to the elephants and cut the straps off their howdahs, sending the riders tumbling to the ground. The Persian infantry then managed to save their army from defeat, though, and the battle ended up being a draw. Uh, The very next day, as the Persians were repairing the elephant towers, the Muslim camel cavalry surged forward, uh, disguised the elephants, kind of pulling a trick from the uh, Assyrians, and the Persian cavalry shied and ended up running away during this battle. Now, on the third day, the Persians had repaired their howdahs and were ready for battle. However, uh, there were some Persian defectors that went ahead and went over to the Arabs, and they revealed the secret weakness of the elephants, their eyes and trunks. Which, you know, I mean, the trunks, I can I can understand, you know, like not really being an obvious thing. But the eyes, I mean, come on, guys, like duh. Uh, with this information, the Muslims aim for the elephant's eyes the trunks, driving a spear through the eye of the lead elephant and driving the West away, uh, giving the Muslims their very first victory. So now we're going to go ahead and shift to medieval Asia. So, as their use waned in Europe and the Mediterranean, war elephants continued to see use in many parts of Asia. Now, as defensive technology for elephants developed, so too did the technology meant uh, to kill them. So, as plate armor grew stronger and more flexible, so too did the penetrating power of arrows due to stronger bows. Uh, they started using composite bows, became very big, as well as metal arrow shafts. So, as they're uh, developing you know, better plate armor for the elephants, they're also developing better arrows. So uh, some armies started to also mount ballistas, called Yantras, onto the howtas. Uh However, they weren't very accurate and soon fell into disuse not long after. Uh, Indian armies used elephants as mobile strongpoints, uh, so their kings often rode to their, and their howdahs as well. Uh, and the Indians also had a medical corps for the elephants, who so cared for them uh, during the night after battles. So, uh, India was the place where the use of war elephants was uh had the longest extent i mean it, it would go up into the very very you know like latest period so there were a lot of the innovation in terms of using uh, war elephants coming from india uh, elephants were also st- uh, still status symbols among the indian elites and featured in many parades and festivals adorned the jewels and often painted bright colors which to this day is uh is a pretty common thing and in, in many parts of india as well the elephant is still a pretty uh sacred animal for lots of indians So now we're going to go ahead and talk about elephants in the Ghaznavid Empire. So the Ghaznavid Empire ruled eastern Iran, Afghanistan, and northern India for about 200 years from the 10th to the 12th centuries. Now, they relied heavily on mamluks and war elephants to staff their armies. Their very first leader was Sultan Mahmud, who was very warlike. It was said that in one battle, he slayed so many enemies that he had to take a hot bath to remove the congealed blood that kept him, uh, kept him from letting go of his sword. So, there you go. Not really sure what else to say about that. So, he invaded India around well, 1001 AD and faced King Jaipal whose army included, uh, quote, 300 chain elephants. So, uh, this is kind of an interesting term here, chain elephants. So, the term chain elephants can mean either that there were a lot of elephants, as a group of elephants is called a chain, and it could also mean the elephants use a chain as a weapon, probably, like, attaching the chain to its trunk, so it's swinging its trunk around, so it's got this giant, heavy-ass chain that's just, you know, whipping around and snapping those necks and whatnot. So I'm going to go ahead and read you a quote as well from page 192 of uh, Jonathan Kinsler's War Elephants kind of talking about this subject. So this is a one example of uh, Mahmood, my, my wreaking uh, havoc on opposing armies. So noon had not yet arrived when the Mussulmans, uh, also known as the Muslims had to wreak their vengeance on the infidel enemies of God, killing 15,000 of them, spreading them like carpet over the ground and making them food for beasts and birds of prey. 15 elephants fell on the field of battle as their legs being pierced with arrows became as motionless as if they had been in a quagmire and their trunks were cut with the swords of the valiant heroes. So uh, it was very, very brutal, brutal fighting that uh, that Mahmud went ahead and uh, and played against King Jaipal. So uh, in this battle, Mahmud defeated King Jaipal and captured two hundred elephants, adopting them into his own armed forces. So Mahmud then used his elephants to batter down the gates of Fortress Tak, uh, named quote the Virgin Fort because it had never been penetrated. <laughs> you you got to love some uh, some ancient's in a sense of humor. So uh, the Gaznaves ended up also inventing a special battering ram that also used five elephants. So while not much detail is given about the device, we can speculate that four elephants carried the ram while another one got it by his mahouts ended up repeatedly pulling the ram back and forth, bashing the city's gates. So which is pretty pretty metal, I will say. So in another battle uh, with Ilaq Khan of the kingdom of Kashgar, Mahmud fashioned Tusk Knives to his elephants to bitter gore, Khan's foot soldiers. So now I'm going to read you another quote, just to kind of tell you exactly how well that went. Uh, The besiegers then crossed over in the face of a shower of stones and missiles, and attacked the gates of the fort, which crashed down, and the fierce charged the elephants. The assailants rushed in to occupy the outer fortifications. The defenders fought bravely and contested every inch of the ground, but when Kalaf saw Mahmud's elephants trampling his men to death, he was so disconcerted that he offered submission and surrendered the fort. So, pretty crazy. Uh, now, in these battles, another Weapon that Mahmood used to very great effect was naphtha, which is basically a primitive form of napalm. That they would go ahead and you know light on fire and put in pots, and then went ahead and just throw the pots. And when they'd of course break open, you have napalm everywhere. And this is very uh, effective as well against Indian elephants. You know this is a great uh, way for to the panic when you have fire and it's sticking to them. So uh, to get an idea about how much importance the Mahmoud placed on his wild elephants, he periodically rotate them out on sabbatical in India where they would rest and to and regain the weight that they should have lost fighting in the less fertile areas of Iraq and Afghanistan. So kind of basically like giving the elephants like tours, you know, like you, like you have a, have a tour of duty. They would be like, okay, you know, you've been out here for, you know, six months to a year. All right. It's time to go ahead and just chill over in India, you know, like eat some food, relax, like get pampered, you know, like it's not, not at all dissimilar to what, what, you know, we do with our own soldiers nowadays. So uh, at the peak of his reign, Mahmud had fifty-four thousand cavalry and thirteen hundred elephants in his entire army. Uh, during one campaign, enemy soldiers once snuck into Mahmud's camp and fed intoxicating drugs to his elephants, causing them to go berserk. Uh, Mahmud ordered the menhunters to kill the rampaging elephants, but some of them did manage to get atop the crazed animals and drove them away to calm them down. So this is a one one way in which you know, this kind of just sh- shows the the great, important, just how important it is to have Mahouts that had a very strong bond with the elephants. I mean, if these were inexperienced Mahouts, it's very likely those elephants probably would have just kept rampaging. So, um, now, uh, Mahmood also developed an exceptionally long spear called a Tamara, which was used to skewer infantry uh, from on top of an elephant. So, it probably would be, you know, at least, like, if you have elephants being like 10, 11 feet tall, probably, you know, close to that long, uh, if not that long. Now, uh, Mahmud's empire would not last forever. He would die in 1030 AD, and his son, Masud then took over. Now, Mahmud's sons were not as successful at maintaining his empire as he was, and so the Ghaznavids were eventually subsumed by larger states. So uh, now we're going to go ahead and get into uh, history's favorite steppe warriors, the Mongols. So, the Mongols never really showed much interest in training war elephants, so they did face them on several occasions. For example, at the Siege of Samarkand, the Mongols prevented a breakout attempt by pelting elephants with arrows. And in Burma, they employed the same tactic, driving them away and annihilating them shortly thereafter. Now, the Mongols did use them, though, for as pack animals in a status symbol. Uh, at one time, Kublai Khan is said to have owned 5,000 elephants. Uh, Although the Mongols were and did end up being driven back by elephants on occasion. So during one attempted invasion of Vietnam, they're driven back by crossbow wielding mahouts, whose elephants were trained to fling men into the air and impale them on their tusks. But holy shit, that must have been fucking terrifying. You just imagine you're just a fucking Mongol step archer, you know, who's like the biggest animal he's ever seen is a horse. He just spent his entire life on this the steps, and then you just witness one of your buddies get flung up in the air and like impaled on a giant beast tusk. Must have been absolutely insane. Uh, They're also stepped uh, dead in their tracks by uh, two thousand seven hundred elephants during an aborted invasion of India as well. Now, uh, interestingly enough, elephants were also used as executioners by the sultans of India. I read you another quote here. So, um. Uh, the elephants quote the elephants, which execute men have their tusks covered with sharp irons with edges, like those of knives. The driver mounts the elephants. And when a person is thrown in front, the animal winds the truck around him, hurls him into the air, catching him one of his tusks, dashes him to the ground when he places one of uh, his feet on the breast of the victim. After this, he does as he is directed by the rider under the order of the Sultan. If the Sultan desires the corporate to be cut to pieces, the elephant executes the command by means of the irons above described if the sultan desires the victim to be left alone, the elephant leaves him on the ground and the body is then stripped of its skin. Which, again, holy shit. You've got guys being tossed up in the air and then being, like, peeled on tusks and then crushed by the elephants. Pretty gnarly way to go. So, uh, needless to say, well, I shouldn't say needless to say because it's very bizarre. Uh, so, Indian sultans uh, became really obsessed with elephants uh, as, as, as time went on. So uh, on several occasions, their armors were even distracted by them. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and just explain what I mean by that. So uh, at one point, the Rai of uh, Jainagar was uh, reportedly delayed by the Sultan Fira Shah uh, to Log's uh, army for several days in the 14th century by releasing a beautiful spotted elephant to the forest near the Sultan's army. So he went ahead and just let them know, like, hey, guys, there's this really, really cool spotted elephant in the woods. And then so the Muslims try to capture the elephant for several days before giving up and then killing it. Uh, then the Rai ended up starting rumors about several more marvelous pachyderms, the forest nearby. And the Sultan ended up spending several more days searching for the beasts. Uh, so the two sides ended up agreeing to peace terms to which the Sultan received 20 elephants and would also receive an annual tribute of them each year. So, elephants ended up averting a war because uh, just a couple, you know, like, a few generals got just like, ooh, ooh, pretty, look at the elephant, and just really became really, really obsessed with the thought of catching them, so, which you you love to see. So, um, now we're going to go ahead and talk about elephants in the age of gunpowder. So, um... Tamerlane ended up leading the... He was one of those famous historical figures that was one of those massive conquerors, kind of similar to Genghis Khan, although, you know, of course, not nearly is famous. So, uh, Tamerlane led the Turkish-Mongols on a mission to conquer the world to spread the Sunni faith. Uh, he once stated, quote, "...as there is one god in heaven, so there should there be one king on earth. The entire world is not worth having more than one king." Uh, in 1398, he moved through Afghanistan on his way to conquer India. The Sultan of uh, Delhi refused to surrender, and Timberland responded by slaughtering tens of thousands of Indian prisoners for the upcoming battle. Now, Sultan of Delhi had only 120 war elephants due to previous civil wars against other Indian nations. Uh, His elephant corps, uh, although had new advancements in technology to help them. These include chakrams, which are like, basically, they're they're fucking, they're awesome. Like, I want to, I want to man i I've, I've like i've seen so little i'm like obsessed with historical weaponry like if you could just see my wall over here in you know in, in the studio just how many different i've got kukris and bowie knives and tomahawks and all this stuff like i want somebody to make a reproduction of a chakram because what it is it's basically like a giant thin metal ring that you could just th- that's sharpened on the outside and you could just throw as, as a, a frisbee and sometimes guys like um Like, Hindu warriors would, like, put them over their turbans, and they would just, like, you know, like, just kind of, like, twirl them around on their finger, and then just, just, like, you use the momentum and just throw them at people, and it was just a great fucking weapon, because they were super easy to produce, and you could just, like, have a whole shit ton of them, Uh, so they had chakrams, uh, they also had, uh, they started developing gunpowder weapons as well, such as, you know, primitive grenades and also rockets. Now, these ragas are basically arrows with a slow gunpowder fuse that explode and send shrapnel out where. And, like, grenades are, of course, grenades. So, uh, the Sultan was outnumbered three to one in this battle, but his elephants gave his men a psychological advantage as the Turks were absolutely terrified of them. So, now I'm going to read another quote to tell you just exactly how this battle went. So. Uh, this is actually also this is written by Timmer himself in his autobiography, so it's coming straight from the horse's mouth. It had been constantly dinned into the ears of my soldiers that that these animals in complete armor marcheded into battle in front of their forces, and that arrows and swords are of no use against them. Then, in the battlefield, they could take up the horse and the rider with their trunks and hurl them into the air. They had been with me in many campaigns, These referred to as soldiers, and had witnessed many great battle. But the stories about the elephants in India had so affected them that they instantly replied that they would like to be placed with the ladies while the battle was in progress. So again, his his soldiers, are they're not quite pulling, you know, Alexander the Great's men's, you know, a lot of like mutinying, but they're saying like, hey, we don't want any part of these fucking elephants, man. Like, just get us away from this shit. So in this battle, though, uh, Timberland ended up building sharpened stakes and caltrops to hinder the movements of the elephants, and also planned to frighten the elephants as well by lighting the horns, buffaloes on fire. So uh, during the battle, Kaltrups, uh ended up stopping the elephant charge. He went ahead and spread a ton of these caltrops everywhere, stopped the charge. Well, Timberlane's archers brought down their mahouts. Uh, then foot soldiers hacked the elephants' trunks as well. Uh, the elephants then turned tail and crashed the Hindu army, routing them. So Timber is was actually pretty successful using. His, uh, his 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 uh, anti elephant technology. You've got like, the classic archers. You've got keltrops. You've got like you know like hacking at the the sensitive areas of elephants, like the the uh, the trunks. Just a whole bunch of very classic anti elephant tactics in this battle. Uh, Timur, Then after this battle, after he won this battle. He went ahead and adopted the war elephants into his own army as a rampaged west, even mounting flamethrowers to them in Turkey against Sultan the I. So, kind of using a primitive like Greek fire, which is like you know where they have like a pump and everything, and then spread it basically while like lighting on a fire. Which, man, if you thought like mounting a Greek fire to like a ship was badass, like fucking and mounting it to an elephant, that is insane. Now, long after Timur died, war elephants would continue to be used in Thailand, Burma, and in some parts of China as well. So, uh, (laughs) interesting enough, so as kind of just a little side note, uh, merchants in this region during this time, uh, often had to watch themselves at night because of elephant raiders. So these are basically like gangs of elephant thieves, uh, who would steal their food, such as sacks of rice and pots of butter, and to this day, it's actually a very common occurrence in Thailand. So, like, basically, you have like in Thailand, you have these like pair, some pairs, pairs, and sometimes gangs of elephants who are, like we have one elephant that will stop a tr- stop a truck going down the road. And the elephants elephants will ambush the truck from behind and steal the sugarcane and tapioca as well. And I've actually seen videos of this. Like there's been I've seen videos of like these giant sugarcane trucks like going through Thailand and an elephant just like walks up like in front of it and then will just steal the sugarcane and just walk away. Because like what are you gonna do? Like it's an it's a fucking elephant, you know, like but I just I, I, I love the idea though of these just like rascally like gang of like elephant ewes just going around stealing random merchants like butter and rice like it's it's just amazing so uh now we're going to go ahead and talk about uh, akbar and his elephants so akbar was a descendant of temerland and he was also the first ruler of the mughal empire and he was really the first guy to really effectively combine gunpowder advancements with war elephants so Akbar trained his elephants in proximity uh, to gunfire so the elephants would become accustomed to them as well, so they wouldn't panic. Uh, soldiers would first fire matchlock muskets with their howdahs, and eventually small cannons were mounted to them as well. Uh, Akbar also invented uh, small cannons called uh, narnals and uh, gajnals that could be taken apart when needed and swiftly mounted atop the howdahs on a swivel. Which I just think is really cool, because you don't really see you know this kind of like, you know easily disassembled sorts of like, you know, artillery and like, you know, firearms until much, much later, you know, like it, was, it used to be such a process, but here he's just got these really nice light cannons that he could just take apart super fast and just mount them to the top of powders. You know, it's, it's very, it's very innovative. It's very neat to see this early on and in, in the history of gunpowder. Um, so the Mughals uh, also invented full-body uh, lightweight Lamellar elephant armor that covered everything uh, except for their feet. So Lamellar, it's kind of like almost like fish scale where it's like it's, you know, it's kind of molded together armor that's layered. And so these like you have layered steel plates. So it's uh, relatively lightweight, but also quite effective. Uh, they also invented a new headpiece that allowed them to cover the, elef- cover the elephant's eyes if they became disobedient or panicked, uh, supposedly to calm them down, uh, whether or not that actually worked is not really known. Uh, iron plates were also fitted to their ears and spikes were placed on their sides to keep away enemy infantry, especially under their vulnerable neck and trunk. So he's developing very effective armor for these elephants. Uh, in 1567, Akbar defeated a much larger army armed with 1500 elephants because the Hindu leader ended up uh, taking an arrow to the eye and, um, His army ended up uh, fleeing as a result. Uh, During this battle, the Hindu elephants were reportedly armed with spears and knives as well. So this wasn't the only battle in which trunk swords were used. Uh, They were reportedly also used by other rulers in India and Afghanistan as well. Now, some sources say that the swords were as long as 12 feet, uh, while other sources say that the trunk swords were connected to the elephant's armor on their trunk. So this would have made it instead of gripping a sword, the elephant would just have to swing its trunk normally. So you've just got these giant elephants just crashing through like your enemy infantry or cavalry, just swinging their trunks and you've just got a giant blade attached to it. It's just absolutely insane. And then as we talked about previously, heavy chains were also reportedly swung by Muku elephants in battle as well. Uh, And um, yeah, so neither tusks, swords, or chains would really be that much of a stretch considering that wild elephants often beat their backs with tree branches to get rid of dirt and sometimes uh, even use them to threaten intruders as well. So if elephants are intelligent enough to, like, you know, threaten people with sticks, they're intelligent enough to threaten people with swords. Uh, Now, the best-performing wild elephants were uh, also fed the best food, along with lots of sugar and alcohol. Uh, When they weren't fighting, they lived in the forest nearby uh, the suburbs until they were called up to fight. So again, kind of like, you know, we talked about earlier, you know, the, you know, it's, it's really, it's really expensive to supply food for elephants. So They kind of, when they were in battle, they would just let them chill in the forests near where the, um, near where the enemy army was or where the people were. And then kind of just like call them up. So uh, now gradually though, as gunpowder technology advanced and became ubiquitous among the armies, War elephants in India were uh, phased out of combat operations uh, beginning in the late 16th century, as it became increasingly clear that they are becoming more of a liability than they were assets. Uh, so they were still used as beasts of burden and as status symbols as well. So the um, so as more armies start to use gunpowder on a much wider scale, it becomes harder to train the elephants, and also I mean elephants make big targets for cannon, so it's um it's it's not a um. It's it's, When you've got, you know, like rifles are one thing, but when you've got cannons going up against elephants, it becomes much easier to just go ahead and take the elephants out from a distance. You don't have to go ahead and get up close and get worried about being stabbed or thrown or stomped. Uh, so, uh, now starting in the late 1500s and early 1600s, European colonial powers began to carve out empires in the far east in search of wealth and riches. Uh, they were largely able to succeed against uh, often far more numerous Asian armies due to a combination of superior technology and tactics. So, as an example, European armies quickly learned that many Asian armies were quick to flee if their general was taken out. So they would simply take a four-pound cannon and aim it at the general's elephant, which was usually, you know, the most, you know, greatly adorned elephant of the bunch. Uh, so the bladed tusk swords, and trunks of the unk swords of the elephants were no match for the rifle that could kill at a distance. Uh, although rifles at this time were rarely responsible for killing elephants by themselves unless one somehow managed like a miraculous shot. But cannons definitely could and uh, did kill plenty of elephants. Now, uh, as another interesting side note, uh, as elephants are being phased out, there was actually, they were being involved in sports as well. So there was a sport of Sathmaru, or elephant wrestling, that was enjoyed in India up until around World War II. So in this sport, the elephants were essentially liquored up to make them really, really angry and just furious. And they're covered in butter or oil to make them harder to grapple with. Now, in the uh, 1660s, Francois Bernier observed the elephant uh, wrestling tournaments and wrote about them. So uh, he, he basically talked about how the elephants were separated by a wall of dirt that was about four feet wide and five feet high. And then they would grapple with each other to try to climb over the wall. And uh, when one made it over, the other would usually end up fleeing, and then the winner would receive money for the king, or the losing Mahouts um, family would sometimes be sent money, but you know, not always. Uh, during these uh, wrestling matches, it was very common for the Mahouts to die, um, as the elephants actually learned that they could win if they just killed the Mahouts. <laughs> so, so the elephants just caught on really fast. Just like, hey, this guy's controlling the other dude. If I just kill him, then like the other guy's gonna run away. So just just showing how smart they are. Uh, sometimes as well, to kind of spice things up, they would include tigers, bulls, crocodiles, and other el- animals, you know, in the uh, matches as well. Kind of, you know, like the Romans would use elephants to call to see Um uh, Now, a little bit about the mahouts' routines. Uh, elephants were comforted uh, by the voices of their mahouts, and sometimes long periods of silences would unnerve them, so it was common for their mahouts to constantly talk to them. So I'll talk a little bit about that. Let's see... So this is kind of an example of just how the elephants would interact or how the mahouts would interact with the elephants. So, quote, the mahout pulls one of the elephant's ears and says in Hindi, go. Silly elephant rises and lurches forward. Active, active, the mahout says, addressing the animal. Anyone would think you were the queen of India. You need a manservant just to wash and massage you, another just to bring branches to eat, another just to exercise you. But I have to wait on you all by myself. Active, active. Where are the weddings and meals to earn your livelihood? He continues talking almost to himself. When they're wild, they run. When they're tame, they won't move. So th- this, to me, kind of shows how you, somehow it's almost kind of viewed the elephants in a way as, I mean, pets. I mean, obviously, you you wouldn't take your pet into a battle. So there's definitely a lot of ethical implications there. But they're clearly like you know, like they're talking to them and reassuring them like you would like a dog or a cat, you know, like in in in, um, in a modern context. Even though obviously these are you know, you know, beasts of war. So it's, it's very it's very interesting to to read about. So we're gonna go ahead and kind of wrap up talking about war elephants in the modern age. So as the colonial period continued, elephants increasingly became relegated to beasts of burden status. Uh, there are very few elephants uh, present at the Battle of Plassey in 1757, uh, but most that were there were killed by the British artillery. So the Battle of Plassey was is a really kind of starts to cement. British rule over India and the fact that there were almost no war elephants there shows that they really were uh, on their way out. Uh, The British did end up using them as artillery haulers uh, though in campaigns in India as well as Abyssinia which of course we now call Ethiopia. Uh, The French also used them to haul heavy artillery during the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 and uh, even the Nazis actually used elephants from the Hamburg Zoo to plow fields and perform farm labor to conserve fuel. Now, during World War II, the largest use of elephants uh, occurred in Burma. So uh, during their invasion, the Japanese, were all, before the Japanese invaded Burma during World War II, there were a whole ton of different uh, elephants that were used for logging purposes. So Japanese would end up conscripting them, and then uh, their mahouts as well to haul soldiers and supplies through near impenetrable jungles. Uh, the British would also use them as field engineers to help build roads, bridges, and canals. So now I'm going to go ahead and give a quote from a Japanese soldier as to what that was like. So uh, once the artillery and the, oh, excuse me. That is the wrong quote. So uh, the, <laughs> the Burmese workers in the Burmese construction uh, volunteer corps were played or paid one rupee per head per day. We paid two rupees per elephant. Everyone took good care of the elephants. Even Japanese soldiers who beat up Burmese never took it out on the elephants. In the early stages, all our food and equipment came by elephants. We had about 10 elephants per platoon. They were left free in the mountains in the evening, a chain hobbling their front legs. They'd search for wild bananas and bamboo overnight and cover themselves with dirt to keep from being eaten up by the insects. In the morning, the Burmese scouts would track them down f- from their footprints. They'd usually be no more than one or two kilometers away. Then they'd get a morning bath on the river. Each mahout would scrub his own elephant with a brush. The elephants looked so comfortable rolling over and over in the river. It took about 30 minutes. Then they had full stomachs and were clean and in a good mood. Now you could pull the saddle, mounts, or pulling chains on them, and they'd listen to commands and do a good day's work. We had to prepare an almost astronomical amount of lumber. The elephants pulled down the trees that we'd sawed almost through, moved them away, and stacked them up with their trunks. So, uh, he's kind of portraying the, this is, this is from the, a Japanese soldier named, uh, Abe Hiroshi. And so he's kind of portraying this as being like, you know, really like, you know, the, oh, we're treating the elephants so well. Like, look at them. They're like frolicking, you know, in the woods or in, in the, in the river and everything with their mahouts. Like, isn't it great? You know? Uh, however, I would go ahead and take this quote with a grain of salt, considering that he was convicted of war crimes for beating POWs and received life imprisonment. So always take your sources. Uh, Now, in 1944, many Burmese Mahouts were forced to work for the Japanese, uh, and as the Allies went ahead and started retaking Burma, a lot of them ended up defecting uh, to the Allied side uh, over the ill treatment that their elephants received. So the Japanese would chain the elephants to their camps at night, not allowing them to forage for food. Uh, As a result, their elephants became quite thin. Uh, Moreover, thanks to Allied air superiority, many Mahouts and elephants were subject to strafing runs by Allied aircraft. Uh, some RAF pilots uh, even asked to be excused from bombing runs against elephants, uh, but ended the war um, uh, so uh, by starving the Je- so excuse me so ending the war by starving the Japanese took preference over the lives of the elephants, and many ended up being killed uh, in these bombing runs. Uh, so, one mahout named Tok uh, Tokgal, who served from 1943 to 1945, wrote about how the Japanese overworked many elephants to the point of death. Many others starved as well. Uh, Japanese soldiers were also observed shooting elephants for their tusks. And uh, elephants were known to suffer burns on their backs from carrying the Japanese batteries. Now, uh, the Allies generally uh, end up treating... Uh, the Allies generally treated the elephants better... Uh, so, uh, but there there were some exceptions, though, of course, as there always will be. Uh, in one case, General Wingate, uh, he famously went ahead and formed Wingate's Chindits, which were like you know a group of British soldiers that you know took a long-range patrols and raided deep into Japanese territory in Burma. Uh, so, at one point, he overloaded an elephant crossing a river to the point to which it drowned. Uh, just as one example. Uh, now, they also did get upset as well by elephants' habit of just leaving to the forest whenever they felt their work was done. <laughs> So, which, which I just, I, I love the attitude of the elephants. Just like, yeah, this is, I'm fucking clocking out, man. I don't, I don't care about your fucking war. Like, I just want to go out in the woods and eat leaves and bananas and just, I just imagine these like, British American commanders just be like, oh my god, where, are, where do our fucking elephants go, man? Like, why do they all go, go in the fucking jungle? Where the fuck are they? You know, like, y- y- you love to see it. So, uh, as a, kind of a funny, little interesting example, there was a uh, one uh, elephant that was on the Allied side, and he was a laundry elephant uh, that was given his own ID number and foxhole to protect it from getting strafed by the Allied aircraft. I'm going to go ahead and read a quote talking about that. So, First Punjabis found an elephant standing sadly on a hilltop near MS-116, swathed uh, in cloud and with a little bell fastened around its neck. with was escorted to brigade headquarters where Brigadier Warren's orderly, who had experienced as a mahout, was entrusted with its care. A large 68 was painted on its back for recognition purposes, just like a vehicle's tailboard. and was employed taking the brigade's laundry down to the river with its hide as a scrubbing board. For the slit trench, the elephant was provided with a shelter previously dug into a bank for a three-ton lorry, and uh, to this, it was wisely retired at the first sound of gunfire. It was last heard of it in the stables of the Maharaja of Kuch Bihar. So this is, you know, just an elephant being used, you know, like in... in and, you know, it, it seems like, you know, in this instance, it was, it was fairly, you know, lovingly used the fact that they would paint, you know, a, um, a, you know, like a 68 and everything on his hide and everything, but also don't use elephants in one in the first place. So, yeah, maybe not. So now we're going to go ahead and fast forward to Vietnam. So during the Vietnam War, elephants were used to haul thousands of tons of supplies over remote and rugged areas of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, being used by the Viet Cong. Uh, thus, of course, they became subject to frequent strafing and bombing runs by U.S. aircraft. Read another quote here. So this is a uh, this is uh, Lieutenant. This is from Lieutenant Fan, who was the Viet Cong's uh 559th Transport. Uh, he went ahead and led the Viet Cong 559th Transport Group. So this is his account. So, he's, he's uh, talking about elephants in this instance. So, they're not easy to manage, uh, this is from him, uh, you know, especially when there's fighting going on. As soon as he left our base, one of them got bogged down in a swamp. After two hours of struggling hard to save it, one of the soldiers suggested we kill it, take a tusk, and distribute the meat to the surrounding villages. But we thought we couldn't do that. These elephants had done a lot for the regiment. Seeing the huge animal sink deeper and deeper into the mire, I lost all hope to save it. Thuan, the commander of the unit, sent men to fell trees in the forest to fill up the swamp. The elephant quickly understood. It grabbed hold of the logs with its four legs and gradually pulled itself from the mud and out of danger. We were all overjoyed and set off immediately. But somehow we were de- uh, detected and our convoy was shelled. We were worried about that our animals, because of their size, were not safe. The lady elephant ran amuck, Fearing it would be killed, Thuan said... Me to tell the how to get it quickly under control. As it was in a lead, the whole convoy depended on it. Thwang gave the order to all the Mahouts to hide behind the large ears of the elephants while they moved on open ground. At last, we got out of the dangerous area. I still wonder how no elephants were hit. So, it's so, showing you know how soldiers, you know, will you know, oftentimes bond with these elephants as well. So uh, during the Vietnam War as well, elephants, you know, because they were being used to haul Viet Cong supplies, they became uh, targets of opportunity for U.S. aircraft. So in, br- in a briefing, uh, as one example, in a briefing for helicopter squadron 265, uh, the pilots were not told to strof- uh, strafe, quote, friendly elephants. When one pilot asked how to tell a friendly elephant from a Viet Cong elephant, squadron commander said to look for mud on the bellies. Uh, this is elephants that the elephant had been quote on the trail meaning the Ho Chi Minh trail now how exactly a helicopter or a um or a, or a fighter aircraft or a bomber aircraft pilot is supposed to tell if an elephant has mud on its belly from like thousands of feet up in the air is anyone's guess so uh, the u s also developed a methane sensor to discern whether or not the elephants were carrying fuel for me- munitions. But of course, the elephant's digestive system does this on its own, so that didn't really work. I mean, it's like, elephants fart, you know? <laughs> like They're going to create their own methane, so that doesn't make any sense. So, uh, now, now this kind of leads into kind of like a really weird, kind of like interesting story. So, uh, in 1967, a friendly Vietnamese village wanted uh, elephants to help them haul logs to a local sawmill. Uh, now the U.S. Uh, wanted to give them the elephants, but they couldn't be marched in because of the was surrounded by hostile Viet Cong forces. So the U.S. decided to fly some in. So this is, you know, they've been, made a Disney movie off of this called Operation Dumbo Drop. So very famously. So uh, there was a couple of different plans as to how best to do this. So one plan was to tranquilize them, uh, create the elephants and then fly them in via helicopter. Uh, Another plan was to push parachute harness animals out of the back of a C-130, which, goddamn, I just, I feel more and more sorry for these elephants, honestly. Uh, So the press became uh, aware of the endeavor, and it naturally became a huge story. Now, there are a couple of different versions of uh, how this actually panned out. So one version states the Air Force managed to get the elephant inside of a C-130, but when the plane took off, they became nervous and started panicking. So the uh, crew ended up having to tranquilize the animal and then, uh, yeah, I'm just going to read uh, another quote because it's it's, it's, very, it's very fucking bizarre what happens. So, uh, once the beast was tranquilized, it relaxed and released a gas so strong that the average human nose could not stand. It mean, a noise so loud that it almost shattered your eardrums and shook the plane. It went baroom. And this is how the operation got its name. So, uh, <laughs> yes, elephants farting. Uh, now, another el- version states that elephants were carried away by a helicopter and put in a village. So, you know, <laughs> the first one is a lot more entertaining, but I'm also probably willing to probably more lean with the second one. So uh, the end result, though, of, of the so we went and talked about how the elephants are getting there, but the end result wasn't very pretty. So uh, it was actually not really reported on as much uh, as the actual buildup for a couple reasons. Uh, For one, uh, Martin King Jr. was shot on the same day. The elephants were dropped off, so naturally this was a much bigger story. And uh, for two, the Viet Cong became aware of the operation and ambushed the elephants as they landed. So three of them were killed. The fourth ran away into the jungle. So, yeah, this did not exactly... (laughs) I'm I'm willing to bet I've never seen the Disney movie, but I'm willing to bet the Disney movie does not end like that. So, uh, now... Now, now we're going to talk a little bit, kind of ended on talking about war elephants today. So the only region in which elephants are currently used for military purposes is in Burma. So uh, they're used by Kachin and Karen rebels. Uh, use them as supply carriers to fight against the military junta in uh, Myanmar. So yeah, that's kind of the only place that they're still being used currently in any sort of conflict zone today. So uh just to conclude about the history of war elephants as a sort of epilogue. So, although conventional military wisdom views war elephants as sort of a gimmick, their track record proves otherwise. Now, although this sometimes did damage their own armies when misuse or uh when misused or misled, elephants were the decisive factor in numerous battles throughout history when they were properly trained in led. Now, elephants have served humans as war weapons or beasts of burden for centuries. Now it's time for us to return the favor. I believe uh, we need to take steps to better preserve their species for future generations, and that is the history of war elephants. So uh, I am going to go ahead and uh, just tell you guys to um, I'm going to go ahead and donate some money to the World Wildlife Fund to go ahead and try to help the preservation of elephants. I think they're a amazing species, highly intelligent, and uh, for all those reasons, and then and just the fact that you know I think they're an, a a species that deserves to be preserved. I'm going to go ahead and donate some money to the WWF. And I encourage everybody listening to go ahead and do the same. Uh, I really hope you guys enjoyed this series. I really enjoyed working on it along a series of podcasts to date. And uh, it was a ton of fun to research. I really loved reading the book. Uh, I highly would recommend War elephants by Jonathan Kinsler, And, uh, there should be new series coming up soon. And I know that I haven't been great about uh, putting the other series uh, or other episodes on the Patreon, but I assure you, I will have some, uh, exclusive episodes coming up shortly. So, uh, until then, uh, go ahead. And, uh, yeah, the best, the best way to view elephants is a way in which, uh, does not harm them in any sort of way. So, uh, that's what I want to leave you guys with and, uh, go ahead. Have a great night, enjoy your weekend, and peace out.